Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at How Stuff Works. I like you, and I like technology. And I don't really know that much about you. I just get a good feeling. But I know a pretty good amount about technology. Today, I want to talk about, you know, tech. And as I'm sure most of you guys know by now, some of you know because you're doing it at this moment, I live stream Tech Stuff recordings on Wednesdays and Fridays over at twitch.tv slash techstuff. There's a chat room over there, and I like to spend some time chatting with viewers and listeners before the show and during breaks. And during one of those breaks in a recent show, one listener put forth a request for a future episode of Tech Stuff, and the request was for camera stabilization or image stabilization. So that's what I'm going to talk about. The future is now. So I'm going to talk about image stabilization in general. And there are two really big, really general ways to go about this. One is to use mechanical elements to help compensate for the little or sometimes not so little jittery movements we make as we try to capture video or still images using handheld cameras. And the other is the software approach in which algorithms and programs attempt to reduce the jitters, sometimes reverse the jitters, using some sort of trickery on the back end. We're going to look at both of those different approaches in this episode. Now, before I do that, I think it might be a good idea to talk about how digital video cameras work in the first place so that you understand what is going on before we even get into stabilization. That way we can better understand the actual mechanics of stabilization when we get there. So let's crack open a digital camcorder, let's say. You guys remember camcorders, right? Uh, I imagine they're still a thing. I don't know. I haven't been in the market for one for a really long time. But these days, there are lots of other devices out there that can capture high-resolution video, including several smartphones. So camcorder is a term I don't really hear very much anymore. Anyway, that doesn't matter as the camcorder's innards are pretty much the same as you would find in any digital camera device these days. Only now we've gotten really good at miniaturizing those components, so you don't have to lug a big thing on your shoulder, nor do you need something that is part camera, part VCR. And if you don't know what a VCR is, you'll have to listen to an older version of Tech Stuff. I'm not going to go into that here. First, cameras record visual images. I know that breaks it down to an incredibly simplistic and almost silly statement, but it is something to keep in mind that we are talking about visual information. Now, there's also audio information. Cameras mostly incorporate microphones these days. If you have a video camera that doesn't have a microphone and you aren't using an external microphone, you might be an avant-garde performer or you may just have a really crappy camera. Breaking this down even further, cameras capture light because everything we see is from light that's bouncing off of surfaces or filtering through materials. Cameras attempt to capture that combination of lighting effects in an effort to replicate it in some way, typically to replicate it in a way that is as faithful as possible to the, to what we would see with our naked eyes. Although, obviously, you can set cameras so that you're capturing stuff and altering it so it doesn't look the way it would naturally. Thus, you have all the different types of filters out there. You Instagram fanatics out there uh, know all about that, taking photos with various filters. But generally speaking, cameras are capturing light. Old cameras did this by focusing that light on photosensitive film. So you would take light, you would direct it to this film, and that would alter the film chemically. You would then develop the film 
putting it through other chemicals, that would give you a negative, uh, a reverse of the image that you want, at least in color. And then you would use that negative to produce prints, and that would replicate what your eyes saw based upon what the camera was capable of capturing. Assuming you had a good camera, it would look pretty much the way you saw it in person. Now, cameras typically use one or more lenses to focus light in this way. In fact, when we say a camera lens, you really mean a series of lenses that are in, encased in some sort of form factor. Uh, it's very easy to think of a camera lens as being a single thing because you might have a, a camera body and then a selection of different lenses where you can attach or detach them. But each of those lenses contains several glass lenses inside of it. It's not just a lens inside a casing. Uh, digital cameras, by the way, do this too. Uh, they do not use film to capture images. They use image sensors to capture them. But they still use lenses to focus the light onto the appropriate part of the camera, uh, this being the sensor as opposed to photosensitive film. The image sensors are solid-state devices, and the two most common types of image sensors are CCD, also known as charge-coupled devices, and CMOS, or C-M-O-S, Complementary Metal Oxide Semiconductors. But what the heck does that even mean? Well, CCD sensors are the older of the two, and they led the way for many, many years in terms of image quality. The CCD was considered to be the top of the image quality. It was also more expensive and less energy efficient, but it produced the best images. A CCD sensor was able to produce much sharper, higher quality images, but CMOS sensors are more efficient, they're more power efficient. Uh, they're also There's also some more built-in functionality with CMOS sensors than there are with CCDs. Uh, plus, eventually the CMOS quality pretty much caught up with, and in some ways surpassed, CCDs. So while there are differences and there's still different kinds of, of uh, cameras out there that have different kinds of sensors and different photographers will favor one versus the other. The differences in quality between the two have largely diminished. It's not as dramatic as it once was. Uh, some budget cameras have CCDs. A lot of the better cameras have CMOSs, but that's not, that's not necessarily across the board. Uh, like photoreactive film, those image sensors are photosensitive. So when light in the form of photons hits the photocytes, photocytes are the little photosensitive elements on these image sensors. Uh, each photocyte essentially is a pixel. So you get one photocyte per pixel. When, when a photon hits a photocyte, this produces an electrical charge. Now, a bright light will end up generating a stronger charge than a dim light will. The photocytes must register the relative brightness of the light that's hitting them, as well as the relative brightness of the color of light, that is red, green, or blue light, in order to re reproduce color images. Otherwise, you're just going to get black and white images. Some sensors do this by having a color filter above each pixel photosite, uh, and they will have a different color filter over the different photosites. This is called a, a Bayer filter array. It's named after Bryce Bayer, who invented the array. It's a filter consisting of a mosaic or array of red, green, and blue filters above the photosites on the sensor chip. So it looks kind of like a checkerboard, except you've got three colors, not two. And uh, one-fourth of those filters are red, one-fourth of those filters are blue, and the other half 
are green. So you have twice as many green as you have either blue or red. So why is that? Why would you have twice as many green filters? Well, that's to mimic the color sensitivity of the human eye because our color sensitivity is not even across the board from a biological standpoint. Some filters, some Bayer filters, will include different shades of green. So you won't just have one single shade of green filter. You might have two. You might have one that's like a dark forest green and one that's kind of more of a lighter green or something along those lines. Uh, some filters will use clear filters in place of some of the green, and that's in order to improve light sensitivity. But in general, that's how most of those filters work. Uh, when the camera records an image, initially it's a picture that's just red, green, and blue in the raw file. So if you were to look at a raw photo image before any processing has happened, it would look really weird. It wouldn't look color realistic at all. It'd look pretty awful. It's what photographers often call false color. But then you have this image processing unit that's part of digital cameras and it can take this raw file and convert it into more natural imaging using what is called a demosaic stage. So it takes all that jumbly information and makes some meaning out of it. Uh, one cool thing that happens with this software is how it determines the color of an individual pixel. So remember, images are made up of millions of these pixels. A pixel is essentially a point of light, or if you prefer, a single point of color in an image. And the more pixels you have, the smaller they, let's say that you have the same dimensions of a photo. Let's start with that. So let's say you're using an eight by 10 photo. This is just for the purposes of explaining pixels and resolution. Uh, if you increase the resolution of an eight by 10 photo, so you're not changing the size of the image, you're just changing the resolution. If you increase the resolution, that means you're packing more pixels into that same physical space. That means the pixels themselves have to be smaller. If you are reducing the resolution, you're decreasing the number of pixels. That means the size of each individual pixel gets larger. So if you've ever seen an image where someone has taken a, a, a digital photo that was for a very small set of dimensions and then they've blown it up, it looks very blocky or pixelated. That's because it was a certain resolution at a certain size, and now you've stretched it. So all of those pixels have individually been stretched as well. If you want to increase resolution, then you have to reduce pixel size to add more pixels to that image. Uh, this only works to make an image sharper up to a point. A higher resolution does not automatically mean a better quality of picture. There are other elements that are also very important, things like color representation. So... Uh, and contrast ratio. So it's not just resolution that you need to think about. This is why we've done episodes of Tech Stuff in the past where we've talked about the megapixel myth, the idea that if you go out and buy a camera that has more megapixels, it automatically takes better photos than a camera that has a lower megapixel count. That's just not necessarily the case. It might be true, but it's not because of the megapixels. It's because of other elements as well. Uh, the only time... You really have to worry about really high megapixels. Counts as if you wanted to take a photo and then blow it up to a really large size. And you didn't want to have too much distortion when you were doing that. You want a really high megapixel count so that you can do that without losing too much on the resolution side. Well, the way this image processing software tends to work is it looks at each individual pixel. And then it looks at all that pixel's neighbors. And it starts to say, well, based upon all the neighbors of this pixel, what color should this specific pixel be? 
And it starts to extrapolate information based on this. And it makes some decisions about what color each pixel should be based upon the nature of its neighbors. And as it turns out, this software is pretty good. It can reproduce colors fairly faithfully. And that seems pretty interesting to me when you think that, you know, when you, how do you start with that, right? When you first start, you don't have any necessarily any natural colors. It's all the red, green, blue. But by using this kind of uh, process of deduction, the image processing software can create a natural looking image. And it's all about, again, looking at all the neighbors of this one pixel to determine what color it should be. This happens super fast, by the way. It sounds like something that would take a really long time, but the software is incredibly fast. Now, Bayer filters are found in many, but not all cameras. Some use other types of filter systems. Uh, the Foveon sensor has red, green, and blue filters over every single photo site. So instead of having either a red or green or blue filter over each photo site, every single photo site has all three. And some photographers say that this produces more uh, natural-looking images. Others say they are completely bonkers, crazy wahoo. Uh, I guess it really depends on your perspective and what you have experience with. Um, because as far as I can tell, it's not that different, but then my visual acuity is nowhere near the level of say a professional photographers. The important thing to remember here is that the image sensor generates an electrical charge based off these photons, whether it's measuring the red, green, or blue, or just the amount of light in general. And the camera has to measure that that electrical charge and convert that value into a digital value or convert that electrical charge into a digital value uh, with an analog to digital converter. And then you're left with digital data for all the processing. So the software does all the work on the back end. So you've got the hard work on the front end where the image has to, or image sensor has to take all these, this light information, convert it into electrical uh, charges measure that and convert that into digital information. And then the software takes that digital information and interprets it to create the image that you're looking at. There are other things to take into consideration here, such as the shutter speed of the camera. Shutter is a device that cuts off light exposure to the sensor in the camera. Uh, the shutter speed determines the exposure time of a camera's, uh, the image that you're taking. So a short exposure is good if you're trying to take an image of something that is moving very quickly, but you need a lot of light to do that. You don't, you're not leaving the shutter open very long for light to get to the image sensor. Same was true of film cameras. You needed a very fast shutter speed, but you needed a lot of light in order for the light to be able to register against the, the photosensitive material, whether it was film or an image sensor. Uh, if you're using a very slow shutter speed where the shutter is open for a longer amount of time, and this is all relative, by the way, we're talking about fractions of a second. If you're leaving the shutter speed open for a longer amount of time, that's great for low light uh, activities. Like if you want to take an image of something that's in really low light, using a longer shutter speed where it's open longer is a good idea. But any motion is going to insert a lot of blur into that image. So you want the you want it to be very still if you're going to use a, a slower shutter speed. If you wanted to do something like high-speed camera work where you're going to show something back in super slow motion, that shutter is moving incredibly fast. You're talking about taking thousands of images every single second. 
Uh, in order to do that, you have to have it very, very well lit. So if you've ever been on a set where they're shooting super high speed uh, footage in order to show back at, at slow speed, then you know what I'm talking about. The lights in those kind of situations tend to be out of control. They're really actually very much in control. They're just extremely well lit. So the whole reason I wanted to talk about this bit is that if you move a camera around while you're taking images, whether it's snapshot or video, you can end up with a jittery mess. And it's really difficult to hold completely still. If you've ever tried to just hold still, uh, you know, even if you've got the hands of a surgeon, you're going to notice a little bit of a jitter in there. Most of us have some of that whenever we operate a camera. Some of it's more obvious than others. And uh, a little bit people can tend to look past, but more than a little bit, it gets very distracting. So if you ever wanted to do something like move around while you're shooting video, you might have so much jitter that it's distracting and you want to figure out a way to reduce that. And we found numerous ways to cut that down. Uh, some ways just involve locking down the camera. So you might put it in a tripod. And then the camera's motion is strictly limited and you can operate it without it having too much jitter, but then you have a pretty static shot. You could use cranes and dollies, which tend to have very smooth movement along certain directions, but you are limited in the ways you can move the camera in both of those. Uh, you can't go anywhere an actor can go. For example, if you wanted to shoot a film, you could put the camera on a dolly that isn't on a track. So there's some track systems. Those are great if you have uneven ground or rough terrain and you put tracks down, you can have a nice smooth camera operation. But again, you're limited to just moving on the tracks. Or you could do a wheeled dolly that can move around uh, an area, but then you need something that's an area that's pretty smooth and flat. That really still limits what you can do with the camera. So one of the ways that we have come up with to improve camera operation and to be able to go in the same places where, say, performers can go, is with Steadicams. Now, the Steadicam was invented in the mid-1970s as a way for camera operators to move around while running a camera and get smooth footage, whether it's with a documentary or with a, a film where you're following actual characters. The Steadicam can remove the jitter created by walking or running. And when we move around in our own bodies, this is happening all the time. There's always this jitter as we're walking or running, but we don't really notice it because our brains are really good at smoothing all of that out to create a more steady experience in our consciousness. So it's only when you're really concentrating on it that you become aware of it. It's sort of similar to how the world does not spontaneously go away and then come back every time you blink your eyes. It's only when you really think about blinking your eyes that you start to notice it. And now you're noticing it, aren't you? Sorry about that. My bad. Don't worry, you'll, you'll stop thinking about blinking your eyes in just a minute, and then everything will be fine. So how does a steady cam stabilize the image so that you can get the really cool effects you see in movies, like the amazing Copa shot in Goodfellas? So if you're not familiar with the sequence I'm talking about, it's, it's in the movie, it's well in the, the film. There's a, a sequence that's a little bit more than two and a half minutes long, and it's a, an uncut shot. It tracks two characters as they cross a New York street they walk down some stairs into the kitchen of a busy restaurant. They walk through the kitchen, passing by dozens of extras as they're moving around in the kitchen as cooks or, or uh, waiters. They emerge onto a dining floor, and they're seated right up front at a stage. And this is all in a single uncut shot. 
And it was using a film camera, not a digital camera. This was in the early 90s. And there were other challenges there. For example, the way the film camera worked, it was actually pulling film from one side of the camera. It would go in through the camera where you would expose the film to light coming through the camera. The exposed film would then go into a canister on the other side of the camera. Now, what that meant was that as you shot film, the weight of the camera started to shift because the side where the the uh, the exposed film was coming out, that started getting heavier and heavier. So you had to compensate for that. It's actually pretty remarkable if you watch that sequence that it doesn't just slowly start tilting toward the right because the camera was getting progressively more heavy on the right side. Uh, by the way, if you're curious, there's some great behind-the-scenes documentaries and interviews about the Copa shot. It's one of those things that's talked about in film school. It took them eight takes and that was it. And they actually finished it in half a day of shooting, which if you've ever been on a film shoot for a two and a half minute sequence uncut to get completed in eight takes is pretty phenomenal. Also, it tells you the difference between someone say like Martin Scorsese and Stanley Kubrick. Because if Kubrick were shooting that, he would have still been doing it years later. Uh, anyway, the Steadicam was a big part of why this shot was even possible, because it meant following these actors through these different environments, including downstairs and through a crowded kitchen. And it was something that you just could not do on a track or on a wheeled dolly. Uh, and it was all because of the Steadicam. Now, the Steadicam itself was invented again in the 70s, not in the 90s. It was invented by a guy named Garrett Brown, who was a commercial director and a producer. He was not an engineer. And he was just trying to come up with a way to remove all this jitter that was coming around whenever you wanted to do a handheld shot and you wanted to follow an actor along a, a place where you couldn't have these other traditional camera setups. And he got a rough idea of it and called it the Brown's Stabilizer in 1973. Fortunately, a more refined version would become the first Steadicam. And it consisted of three components. You had an articulated isoelastic arm that would uh, attach to a sled. The sled was a kind of a, it's, it's a housing for the camera and for all the camera components. It looks like a big pole and then the various components attached to either the top or the bottom of the pole, the camera at the top, and then everything else closer toward the bottom. And then a, a vest that helped distribute the weight of the system and provide more stability. So you had an isoelastic arm that on one end would attach to the vest and thus have that you know dis weight distribution. On the other end, it attached to the sled, which held the camera and its various components, like a battery pack, a monitor, that kind of thing. Now, the arm of the original Steadicam was a lot like a swing arm lamp with a spring-loaded arm. Uh, if you ever look at one of those, in fact, I have some right in front of me right now because the microphones I use are on that, this style of arm. You have two bars that make up each segment of the arm, and they're in parallel with one another. Uh, these two bars would then end uh, at metal blocks, and they would also join together with a pivot point. Uh, a pivot joint that will allow them to kind of bend like a human arm would. And the camera sled would fit onto the arm. The sled would consist of that assembly that holds the camera, the battery, the motor, counterweights in some systems. All of that's very important. And it's on what is called a sled pole, a central piece of the sled. 
and that fits into the arm of the Steadicam. Now, the way of the sled and the camera is constantly pulling the arm that's attached to the vest downward, right? So imagine that you're holding a weight at arm's length. Let's say it's a, a 15-pound weight. You're constantly feeling gravity pulling down on that weight that's being held out at arm's length. The Steadicam arm is the same sort of thing. It's holding up the sled and the camera. Well, the way it holds it up and keeps it in the same relative position so that the camera doesn't just continuously sink toward the floor is through this spring-loaded system. Uh, it's counteracting that downward force. The parallel metal bars in each arm have these spring systems that are creating a force that's directly opposite the downward force of the weight from the sled and the camera. In fact, it's precisely calibrated, so it will maintain that. That way, the only time you change the elevation of the camera is if the camera operator wants to. The camera operator can raise or lower the camera, but it'll then stay in that relative position relative to the camera operator because the arm's spring-loaded system is counteracting that downward pull from gravity. It's really clever. It's also very difficult, obviously, to explain this in an audio format. Fortunately, there are numerous articles, including one on how stuff works about how Steadicams work, as well as videos uh, on various platforms that show how Steadicam systems work to kind of help you get a visual reference to what I'm talking about. So if you still are having trouble imagining this, I highly recommend checking out an article or watching a video to get a little deeper understanding. To get that spring system uh, into further detail, it would require a very deep discussion. So, and again, it's very difficult to explain it in an audio format. So let's just say that there's a system of pulleys and springs inside these arms that provide that counterforce. And we'll move on to talk about the sled and the sled pole. So the sled includes an element called a gimbal. And a gimbal is a mechanism that keeps something in a position of relative stability despite a moving environment. Typically, horizontally. And in fact, gimbals have been around for centuries. In the good old days, ships used compasses mounted on gimbals, and that allowed the compass to appear horizontal even as the ship was pitching or rolling on rough seas. Typically, gimbals consist of a couple of rings pivoted at right angles to achieve this effect. And so the, uh, the, the system around the compass moves, but the compass itself appears to be steady uh, relative to you. The camera's sled also changes a camera's center of gravity. So the center of gravity, obviously, that's the, the point at which you can balance an object. And cameras, typically, their, their center of gravity, it doesn't make it very easy to keep them nice and stable. But adding them to the sled, if you add mass to something, you change its center of gravity. And typically, the, the handle, the control system, for a Steadicam is located very close to the actual center of gravity of the, the whole system. That allows you to have much more control over the camera and stabilize it as such. Uh, the sled also changes the, the moment of inertia for the camera system. Uh, that means that it becomes more resistant to rotation. And that's really important for image stabilization, too. The effect of a Steadicam is that you get this gliding shot that isn't bothered by all the shakes of walking or running. And there are tons of examples of Steadicam shots in cinema. 
the Goodfellas shot being a really famous one, or there's also one in Kubrick's The Shining. There's a part where Danny is running away from his dad in a hedge maze in the snow, and we're following right behind him as he's making turns left and right. And uh, it's a steady cam shot. It's pretty impressive. So that's another famous one. But there are tons of them in movies. Now, as we'll see in a bit, some cameras today incorporate equally ingenious ways to reduce unwanted motion in footage that do not require you to strap it to some sort of complicated uh, apparatus that you have to then wear so that you can take some of the weight onto your own body. And we'll talk about them in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, so let's say you want to get smooth video or you plan on capturing still images, but you want to use a lower shutter speed to capture in low light and you're going to be holding the camera by hand. You're going to want to reduce that jitter or else what you'll get back won't look nearly as good as what you want, what you saw in person, unless you're really going for that shaky cam look, in which case uh, image stabilization isn't really your bag, baby. For a camera to correct for that kind of motion, you need a few elements. The first, which you'll find in both of the major solutions to this problem, would be sensors that can detect camera motion. For a camera to correct for a shaking motion, it first has to detect that shaking is happening in the first place or else nothing can happen. So let's consider the type of sensors found in these solutions that can detect camera motion. So, for example, we'll talk about optical image stabilization or OIS solutions. Uh, that's one of the two that we're going to chat about in this section, optical image stabilization and in-camera systems. Those are the two big ones. And both of those rely on sensors to detect when motion is happening. Otherwise, there's no way to compensate for it, right? You have to know something's happening before you can fix it. Well, the optical image stabilization uses the optical pathway, in other words, the lenses, to correct for camera shaking. And from a very basic standpoint, the secret is that these lenses have a specific movable lens, a floating lens inside of them. So a, a an actual lens singular inside this lens casing will be movable with respect to the rest of the, the system inside of it. It can shift left, right, up and down. Uh, movable lenses are pretty cool, and I can't wait to talk more about it in a second. But again... In order to move the lens to where it needs to be, you have to detect the shaking in the first place. It's a little complicated. So you've got these sensors, and with these solutions, that's typically uh, two piezoelectric angular velocity sensors, which do what gyroscopes do. And the reason you need two of them is because each sensor really only detects motion along one element of movement, like horizontal or vertical. So you need two of them at sort of 90 degrees from each other in order to, to detect vertical motion versus horizontal motion. And together, they can detect the motion you would find in your typical camera shaking movements. They're not going to be able to fix anything that's dramatic. So if you whip the camera left or right or up or down, it's not going to be able to compensate for that. But for just the small motions that our hands make while we're holding a camera and trying to capture an image, they can often correct for that. Uh, so you got to keep that in mind. It's really the jitters that these things fix, not the big stuff. Uh, also for the optical image stabilizers, they cannot correct for rotation along the optical axis. 
In other words, if you were to take your camera, let's say you're holding up a camera and it's got a, a, a lock in on the way the image is showing up, like landscape, and you start rotating the camera uh, so that you're doing either a clockwise or counterclockwise motion, tilting the image, these sorts of sensors don't detect that kind of momentum, that rotational momentum in that respect. So you could get tilt, but no jitter in this case. So how do those sensors work? Well, we got to break it down. And it's a little little scary when you see something saying piezoelectric angular velocity sensors. What the heck does that mean? Well, if you break it down, it's not that tough. First, you've got piezoelectric. You've probably heard of the piezoelectric effect. This refers to the ability of certain materials to generate an alternating current voltage when those materials are subjected to mechanical stress or vibration. Uh, they also will do the opposite. They will vibrate if you subject them to an alternating current voltage. So it goes either way. Uh, quartz crystals do this, and that's why they were used in watches and still are in some watches. Uh, so it's a very predictable behavior. If you know the, the, the basics of that material, you can replicate it over and over and over again. It's always going to be the same. Next, we have the term angular velocity. So that refers to the change in rotational angle along an axis per unit of time, and we express this in degrees per second. That's how you measure angular velocity, in degrees per second. So a piezoelectric angular velocity sensor is one that detects changes in rotational angles along an axis by generating an alternating current voltage in response to mechanical stress. And that mechanical stress is brought to us courtesy of the Coriolis effect. Uh, or the Coriolis force, I really should say, not the Coriolis effect, which is a very specific thing that refers to an enormous system called planet Earth, but the Coriolis force. This is an inertial force that was first described by Gustave Gaspard Coriolis in 1835, a French engineer of some renown. And as Encyclopedia Britannica puts it, quote, Coriolis showed that if the ordinary Newtonian laws of motion of bodies are to be used in a rotating frame of reference, an inertial force acting to the right of the direction of body motion for counterclockwise rotation of the reference frame or to the left for a clockwise rotation must be included in the equations of motion. So essentially it's talking about detecting specific types of, of velocity, of changes in, well, not even changes, but just in the direction and speed of motion. The important thing to remember is that any motion would cause these piezoelectric sensors to deform slightly. So they can take different shapes, and these are very tiny, tiny sensors, but they can take different physical shapes, like a tuning fork shape is not uncommon. And as you move these things, it deforms them. They change their shape slightly because of that inertia. And that mechanical stress thus generates an alternating current voltage because they are piezoelectric materials. The sensor will detect that change in voltage or that generation of voltage. And it gets a little more technical from here, but it also gets really complicated. So kind of like the Steadicam, we're going to take a, a bird's eye view of this. Essentially, the sensors consist of sensing arms and drive arms of this piezoelectric material and the motion sensed produces a potential difference, an electrical potential difference. It's this potential difference that indicates to the sensor the change in angular velocity, 
And the sensor's output is an electrical signal, which can then be processed by a microcomputer. The other big element to this optical image stabilization system is the movable lens, that floating lens inside the overall camera lens. So this is completely contained within a camera lens itself. If you've ever seen a, a camera where you've got a body that can then, you can attach different types of lenses to it. You uh, attach the lens and if you need a different lens, you pop the first one off, you put a new one on. This system is completely contained within those individual lens cases. It's not in the actual camera body itself. So we're talking about a piece of glass, essentially, that's shaped a very specific way that's in a movable frame inside this lens and movable so that it can go up, down, left, or right, uh, but it still remains aligned front and back with the rest of the lens assembly. So it's all meant to direct light back to the image sensor in a proper way. And you typically have a lens in the focusing group. That's the one that's closest to the end, the part that you're, you know, is facing out to the outward world. That's the focusing group lens. And then toward the back of the lens array, you have some other lenses that are meant to direct the light properly. Between those two sets is where you put the image stabilization lens. Really, you don't do it. The lens manufacturer does. Don't open your lenses. That's crazy talk. But the uh, stabilization lens is in between these two other sets. So you got the focusing lens at the at one end of the, the lens array. You've got the uh, other groups in the very back that are directing it toward the image sensor. In between those, you have this floating image stabilizer lens. And it's not fixed in relation to the rest of the lens array the way the other lenses are. So it's in this frame that uses electromagnets to move the frame with respect to the rest of the lens array. And it, it's this frame that reacts to the information from the motion sensors. So the motion sensors are picking up jitter. And based upon those electrical potential differences, it's able to identify how much jitter is coming up and down versus left and right. It sends that information to the microcomputer or microcontroller rather that controls the movement of the frame holding this image stabilizer lens. The image stabilizer lens then is moved into place so that the light coming in through the focusing lens can be redirected toward the lenses in the back of this lens array to thus go to the image sensor in the very back of the camera. And it the end effect is supposed to be as if there was not any jitter at all, as if there was no broken line between the light coming in through the focusing lens to the image sensor in the back. So if you want to think about it in another way, imagine that you've got uh, a character, let's call him Aziz, and Aziz has a, a, a mirror, and Aziz is standing at the entrance of a cave, and light is coming in, and you need to have some light directed from the outside of the cave into the cave so you can read some really funky hieroglyphics that someone wrote years ago that suggest that maybe aliens came down ages ago. And you yell, Aziz, light! And Aziz has to manipulate the mirror in such a way so that light coming from outside is then reflected to go further into the cave and illuminate the cave wall. That's what this image stabilizer lens is doing, except instead of reflecting light, obviously, it's it's directing the light by making it go through a specific part of the lens. And yes, that was a fifth element reference for those of you who are paying attention. And if you don't know what that is, you should watch the fifth element. 
because it's amazing. It doesn't have a lot of Steadicam shots in it, but it's a great movie. Anyway, the cool thing about this particular approach, this optical image stabilization approach, is that it can turn any compatible camera into an image stabilized camera because all the technology is inside the lens itself. So if you have a lens that's got this image stabilization system in it, then you can attach that to any compatible camera and you get that image stabilization. The downside is it really makes those lenses more expensive and lenses are not cheap to start off with. So if you're building up a selection of lenses and you want them all to have image stabilization capabilities, you start really racking up the cost pretty quickly. But there is another route to go, and that is called the in-camera stabilizer. This takes a different approach to stabilization, but it uses a very similar philosophy. So instead of having a floating lens internally in that array that can move around and redirect light, uh, it actually has the image sensor itself on a movable frame. So this would be as if you could move that cave wall so that it was in line with the light as opposed to moving the mirror to redirect the light to the cave wall. You're actually moving the sensor itself. Otherwise, it's behaving pretty much the same way as the optical image stabilizer. These are also sometimes called mechanical image stabilizers uh, to differentiate the two or in-camera image stabilizers because it's inside the camera, the body of the camera itself, not inside the lenses. So the big pro here is that if you've got that in the camera, it doesn't matter what kind of lens you use because it's already got the image stabilization in there. The downside is if you're using lenses for... Uh, something that's further away, you're using like zoom lenses, that kind of thing, the reduction in jitter is less effective than it would be if you were using the optical image stabilizer. So depending upon your use, one may be better than the other. Uh, depending on your budget, the in-camera version may be better. And in fact, you can find this specific type of image stabilization in lots of smartphones out there. They actually have this capability of moving the image sensor tiny, tiny amounts to reduce jitter. Not all of them do this, by the way. Some of them use post-process image stabilization, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, so it's kind of a neat and elegant solution. Um, if you have stabilized your camera, let's say that you've got one of these two systems in place in your camera system, uh, and let's say that you've decided to, to really lock down your camera, let's say that you put it on a tripod, you actually probably want to turn off image stabilization at that point. And if you don't turn it off, the motions of the stabilizer itself can end up being picked up by the system, which then tries to compensate for that movement, which puts me in mind of the time I was in college and tried tightrope walking for the first and only time in my life. So let me explain, because this analogy, I think, is very apt. When I tried tightrope walking, I stepped on the tightrope, and it was really something between a tightrope and a slack rope. And as I put weight on my leg, my leg began to shake. Now that caused the rope to move around and I tried to catch my balance, but found myself overcompensating. So I would shift and then the rope would move the other way and I'd try and shift again. And it was just getting worse and worse. And it caused my leg to shake more. And instead of steadying myself, I just found the lower half of my body was going crazy and not in a fun way. So after approximately 15 seconds of trying this, I realized that tight ropes were probably just one of those things I wasn't meant to experience, and I stopped. Now, the image stabilizer system kind of behaves the way my legs did on that tight rope in these situations. So you've got your image stabilized camera on a tripod, and your image stabilization is turned on. A little motion within the system itself 
could be picked up as a camera shake. So then it tries to compensate. But because the camera's not actually shaking, it's on a steady tripod, uh, it then starts to detect the solution for that shake as its own problem, and it becomes this feedback loop. And this can actually introduce motion blur and jitter in your photos even and your video, even though you've got your camera mounted to a stable tripod. So you might want to turn off image stabilization in that process, unless you plan on doing a panning shot. So panning shots can be tricky too. You want a nice even pan. You're either going left to right or right to left. And you want to avoid introducing any jitter in the image vertically. Well, some image stabilizers have a panning mode, so that way they compensate for vertical movements, but not horizontal movements. And those systems will remove some of that jitter while still allowing for a nice smooth panning motion. With both optical image stabilizers and mechanical image stabilizers, it took a lot of engineering to figure out precisely how to make the internal mechanisms respond in such a way to preserve the integrity of an image while simultaneously removing jitter. And while the basics could be found in much older technologies and used for centuries like the gimbal, getting that precision and response time to a level that was useful in a dynamic use case such as taking video or photos required a whole lot of engineering. So I'm really impressed at this technology. But we still have one more variation to talk about because some systems don't use any moving parts at all to create image stabilization. Instead, they try to beat the problem with software in a post-process solution. So how does that work? Well, we'll find out. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Some digital cameras, particularly some smartphones, have what is called virtual image stabilization or electronic image stabilization or sometimes just post-process image stabilization. And these systems don't use moving parts to adjust sensors or lenses in order to keep the image nice and steady. Instead, they use software. So what's going on here? Well, from a high-level perspective, a program attempts to reverse any shake found in an image algorithmically. And some do this in a pretty basic way. Imagine you have a video open on YouTube. So let's just say you've got a regular video. It's not full frame. It's just the, the video in YouTube's uh, desktop application. Now imagine that the actual video footage extends beyond the borders of that video frame. I mean, even if you were looking at it in full screen mode, imagine that the video itself would extend a little bit beyond every single border, just a touch. So what you're seeing is not the full frame of video. It's a section, a cropped section of that video. The edges are cut off because those edges provide some cheat room, a little bit of buffer for uh, the purposes of image stabilization. Now, this approach relies on some assumptions. The program does not necessarily know which elements of a video you're really interested in. So it has to make some guesses. Let's say that you're taking a video of a kid running. Uh, and the kid's running, I don't know, through the snow in a hedge maze. And you're running after the kid. Maybe you're shouting out encouraging words about this nifty hotel you've been hired to look after. And your video footage would be really shaky because you're holding the camera as you're running. You don't have a steady cam, So every single run step you're taking, it's, it's jittering the camera. But feeding the footage through an algorithm can smooth things out a bit. And the algorithm recognizes that the kid you're chasing is the interesting thing in the frame. It's doing this through some processing and figuring out which pixels are changing the most and which ones are staying more or less the same and kind of drawing some conclusions based on that. So while the camera shakes around, the algorithm repositions the frame of view for the audience 
so that the kid remains more or less in the same general area relative to the screen. So you can think of it as like a, a picture-in-picture sort of thing. And the picture-in-picture, picture, that frame is moving around with relation to the rest of the the uh, the the big picture view, but if you just stare at whatever's happening inside that picture within picture, it looks nice and steady, or at least compared to the overall image. Uh, this is not a perfect system, obviously. It can sometimes be very off-putting, but it is a common one that's in use in post-process image stabilization. Uh, the way this is done practically has changed over the years, like the way that people have actually designed the algorithms so that they could make this happen. That has changed. So a very early version of this would have a camera, essentially the, the image processing software, identify a point in the background that was clearly defined and lit. So let's say that you've got uh, an image of a person standing in a field and there's a... a, a some wooded forest as opposed to the unwooded forest in the background. And there's a particular tree that's in nice sharp relief. Well, the image processing software might focus on that tree and say, all right, we're going to lock on to this section of the tree and we want that section of the tree to be in this relative position in our frame of view for the duration of this video. So you're hand-holding the camera, pointing it at somebody who's standing in the field chatting, and because of the image processing, trying to keep that one part of the tree in that one part of the frame, it stabilizes the image, even if there's a little bit of jitter as you're holding it, pointing it at the person who's talking in the video. Uh, that works okay. It's, it's a little primitive. You could actually uh, do a fairly nice static shot that way, but you can't move the camera at all. Because if you start moving the camera purposefully, I mean, beyond just the little jitters, then that frame of reference is going to move dramatically and the software can't handle that. It has to, you know, keep an eye on a relatively stable shot. So this is for static images, static video. Uh, a slightly more advanced version of that same approach would pick two reference points. So one on either side of the frame, and then it would essentially draw an imaginary line between those two points. So let's say... It's identified a tree on one side and a bush on the other side and said, all right, based upon this setup, we want these two points to remain in the same general spots in your frame of view. And the line that's between them will always be at the same alignment, no matter what. This would allow you to actually have some rotation of the camera as well. And the processor could uh, could. Uh, account for that and correct for it. So let's say you're holding a smartphone and you're trying to take video of someone and you're using this particular version of image stabilization. If the right side of your smartphone were to dip down a little bit and the left side lifts up a little bit, thus you would have a little bit of a tilt to the video uh, before you corrected it. Because of this particular form of post-process image stabilization, it would detect that change relative to that imaginary line and correct for it. Uh, depending on how dramatic your turn was, you might actually notice this while looking at the playback, because unless you crop further into the image, you might start seeing the edges of where the, the cutoff is for the video popping up, and it can be a little weird. You may have even seen this in some videos online where you start seeing an edge kind of creep into the video a little bit. 
That's due to this post-process image stabilization, whether it was for jitter or for rotation. And uh, it can be very off-putting. Uh, that's why most people who use this, who are actual video editors, will digitally punch in a little bit. They'll crop the image so that they cut off those edges so that you can't see that when it happens. Of course, the problem with that is that you have to be at a high enough resolution where when you digitally punch in, it's not it, it's not a noticeable decrease in quality of the actual image itself. For moving shots, uh, visual image stabilization might look at individual pixels and track how they change over time. And they interpret that as motion. So if these pixels are changing in ways where you see one pixel changing and the pixel next to it has become the same as the pixel that was to its left. And then two pixels down, it becomes what was two pixels to the left, et cetera, et cetera. It can then start to interpret this as motion and it starts to work out where things are moving. And then in editing, you can, again, crop your video to remove those jolting edges and punch in a bit. Some folks from Google and Georgia Tech actually developed a new method of virtual image stabilization a few years ago. So I guess it's not new now, but it was a couple of years ago. And they published their work in a paper titled Auto-Directed Video Stabilization with Robust L1 Optimal Camera Paths. The paper also gets super technical. It is out there free for you to read. So feel free to seek it out if you are technically minded. Uh, here's the bit that I think is really important. They lay out that this post-process video stabilization uh, requires three steps. And the first is to estimate the original camera path, which is the one that's all shaky and stuff. It's the one you want to fix. The second step is to estimate a new smooth camera path. And the third step is to synthesize a stabilized path by following the estimated smooth path. This is not easy to do, and there are lots of different ways to try and do it. And we're always seeing developments in this space. However, that being said, even as this post-process stabilization technique advances and it evolves, I think most filmmakers would argue that the optical image stabilization and the in-camera stabilization systems are far superior. That you can get some image stabilization that's all right for basic use in this post-process approach, especially if you're going to just do something like share something online, like it's a online video or, you know, something on Facebook or Twitter. It's not that big a deal to have this post-process image stabilization then. But if you want something that is more of a professional level, hands down, the argument I have seen is that you should go optical image stabilization if you can, in-camera stabilization if, you, if optical is too cost-prohibitive, but either of them are far more uh, reliable and effective than post-process image stabilization. And they are not going to create the weird artifacts that you might see using a software-based solution. So it turns out that in this case, the mechanical one, the electronic mechanical one, might be better than the software one. That may not always be the case. We may eventually get to a point where there are advanced enough algorithms and and advanced enough cameras where it becomes a non-factor, but it, we're not there yet. So generally speaking, image stabilization is all about trying to take out the frailties of being human. It's trying to remove that little element of humanity where we get that imperfection that creeps into our art. And for some of us, that means that uh, we get an image that we actually really wanted to convey to our audience. 
For other people, they may say, well, that kind of removes some of the humanity from the art itself. And I'm not here to make either argument. I think that there are some amazing uses of image stabilization that create really compelling effects and are great for storytelling. And I think there are elements where you don't want that, where you want something more naturalistic and shaky to convey a specific kind of mood or tone. And really it comes down to the intent of what you are doing and uh, the theme that you're going for. I don't think that either is necessarily inferior or superior to the other. And I enjoy plenty of work that incorporates uh, both types of elements. Hopefully, purposefully. Sometimes you get these, these effects just by happenstance because people just didn't know any better. And that can still be effective, but it's a little less special to me than when people go into it knowing what they're doing. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. It was a lot of fun to look into a more technical aspect. I've got another one coming up soon that's also extremely technical and also was a suggestion that was left in the twitch.tv slash techstuff chat room. Remember, on Wednesdays and Fridays, I do live stream my recordings of techstuff. So just go to twitch.tv slash techstuff. You can see the schedule there. Also, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of techstuff, you can send me a message. Uh, my email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. People ask me for it all the time. I say it in every single episode. Techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. That's it for me. I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 